Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. What is the best way to upset nurse practitioners and physician assistants? Just call them extenders or mid-levels. Watch the food fly. And how do you upset MDs and DOs? Call them providers. Words matter because today in 36 states, they've approved NPs in full or near full authority for their scope of practice as physicians. There's three states that are doing the same for PAs. Private equity and big systems and nurses themselves are behind this push for good and unholy reasons. The good is that nurses with appropriate experience are still employed by docs in the old days to profit uh, so they can see more patients and bill the nurses out at doctor NPI rates. So they're paid 36% less, so they became a profit center and they didn't like it. So now in 36 states, they profit off their own labor if they choose to go into practice for themselves. And the unholy reason is that they are 30% less cost to hospitals and private equity groups but they tend to order and are pressured to order more useless tests and procedures that make volume-centric models like most hospitals very happy. And they add nothing to the outcomes, all these procedures and worthless tests. In fact, there's a worthless test I ordered every 15 seconds in America. And they're simply about profits and bonus achievement. So the nurses I know well hate this role they must play and they would flee in a second if they had a better opportunity. So they're sadly margin feeders according to several studies touted by today's guest. Now, 60 years ago, physicians established NPs and PAs to offer better primary care. So this was really all about a supervised assistant, if you will, who can do a lot of the roles of a doctor, see more patients. And today those numbers have kind of flipped on the primary care world and that 50 to 75% of NPs are still in primary care, the rest are not. And 33% are of the PAs are in primary care, the rest are not. Why? Well, it's kind of obvious. The specialists can pay more, they make more, and big systems and private equity-backed groups vacuum up these folks so they can provide other types of care and pay them more and earn more. EBITDA. So remember, the scope of practice is ever-widening, so they can, for example, cut beneath the skin in some states or prescribe the medication, class one, class two, with no supervision of a doc in some states. You therefore may see, literally, nurse GI specialists or nurse brain surgeons, neurosurgeons with no testing, training or supervision and have zero uh, reason to be in that operating theater. But this may be rare, but it's a very real and fearsome possibility. So today's guest is gonna teach us about direct entry. And that is where you can say, let's say I have a bachelor's in economics or journalism or liberal arts. And that now gives you an entry point into nursing school, any bachelor's, not pre-med, not biology, but journalism for goodness sake. So there are several NP programs with 100% acceptance rates, no fails. What do we call those? Diploma mills. 
And yet, what is the most trusted profession in every Gallup poll for decades in America? Nurses and doctors are always fighting it out for annually number one spot. So this is a problem. People don't know about this, yet they trust these folks. And are these diploma mills getting reported or are they self-policed? I don't know, but today's guest does. Let's talk about MD and DO hours of practicum before they're allowed to actual practice. So we know from reading all these great books that 10,000 hours is how the Beatles got to be the Beatles. And that's how Bill Gates got to be Bill Gates and Steve Jobs got to be Steve Jobs. And it takes a doctor, not 10,000, but really when you throw in the two years of medical school, about 15 to 16,000 hours before they're allowed to get out in the real world and practice without supervision. So that's two years of medical school, three years of residency, and then many have a fellowship of two to three years as well. So what does a nurse have to go through for the same practicum to get out in the real world and practice for themselves? 500 hours to 2000 hours, and it's even less than for PAs. So 36 states, remember, have scope equivalency. So the big question, is this safe for patients to be treated if a nurse or a PA is not supervised until they have thousands of hours of practical experience? That's really the question for us today. And let's be fair, on the nurse's side, they have no federal funded residency. The feds pay teaching hospitals nearly $600 million annually to subsidize residents, not a dime for nurses or PAs. So what are they supposed to do? Make it up? They're asking a fair question here. So that's the rock and the hard place we have to work between today. There are two nursing teaching programs that have lost accreditation in the past year. One of them in the Bronx called Lehman College and one of them called the Medical Prep Institute of Tampa Bay. And there's others in, under investigation, these so-called diploma mills. So hundreds of nursing students were scammed. They didn't get their credited hours. They're not getting a refund. What about the nurses who practice today as graduates of these sham schools and their patients? Another big question, right? This is an interesting set of problems we got here. So appropriate training and supervision is the crux of this whole issue. Now, some states also, I want to talk to today's guest about, have a one to six supervision ratio like Texas. Some like Florida have a one to 10 ratio. I don't know what the rate is for hers in Washington, but it's all different across the country. And sometimes the doctor has to be on site where the nurses and the PAs are, sometimes they don't. Most of the case, they don't. And I'd argue that's not supervision, that's profiteering. That's good lobbying. Okay, so there's a lot going on here and to sort all this out, and we're gonna welcome Naran Al-Ajba. She's a pediatrician in private practice the past 20 years, following the footsteps of her dad and her granddad, treating the third generation of her dad's patients now. Pretty cool. She recently co-authored Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, You've seen her articles in Fortune, MedPage Today, and the Seattle Times. Welcome, Niran. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, what a great intro. There's so much to cover. It's a lot of meat, isn't it? There's not, none of this is small stuff. It isn't. And you know, the only thing I would disagree with is it's not all that rare. So today, you're probably about as likely to see a doctor as you are to see a doctor nurse. Um, and they may not tell you they're a doctor nurse. They may just say they're a doctor too. So um, I would argue that now if you go into any ER or urgent care, frankly, you're more likely to see a nurse practitioner or PA as your primary care person in that setting. So Duran, my, you, my read of your book is you're not anti-nurse, you're not anti-PA, you're anti-private equity and big systems really turning this into a profiteering system. Absolutely. Thank you for getting that and leading with that, because to be honest with you, um, that is 
really what got me. I am the antithesis of the large corporation. You know, I mean, I've had a small business. It's been in existence 50 years and it's continuing to remain as an independent facility and independent practice. And so uh, everything I stand for is for patient safety, for the patient, and really against these private equity and corporate takeovers of a, a business um, that really shouldn't be a business. You know, healthcare is an art and it's a calling and it's a profession. So it's kind of like the mouse that roared. They're sitting on BlackRock <laughs> billions and you're sitting on, you know, a, a small megaphone. What do you hope to accomplish with this book? I know it speaks the truth, but what is your fondest expectation? Well, my fondest expectation, which you're going to think I'm a little crazy, is that, first of all, I've given up on politicians. I've given up on corporations. You're right. They they're, have millions to throw at us. So I really wanted to reach patients with this book. And, I, you know, if I reach doctors and I reach other healthcare professionals, that's great. But I really want to arm patients. Um, I often say I have the smartest patients in the world. And they keep me on my toes and they um, help me take good care of them. And so as part of it, I want to take better care of them and arm them with information so they can empower themselves when they're in a setting when I'm not treating them. So they can ask, who are you? What is your education? Are you a physician? Are you a nurse with a doctorate? Are you a PA with a doctorate in medical science? You know, who, what is behind the title doctor? Let's, let's dig into some of these issues. Um, are, are there any medical schools that have lost their accreditation like these nursing schools have? And that was, I just looked in 2020, that was in one year we lost two. And it looks like there's another one or two that might be on the uh, platform to plunge over the edge as well. Yeah, not that I not that I know of. And again, I didn't exactly look at that to prepare for this, but um, I have not heard of any specific medical schools in the U.S. that are having their accreditation called into question. But again, we've had the Flexner report for nearly, well, actually 100 years, and we've really standardized our education. And that that's a part of this book that the nurse practitioners who've read it really say, wow, this is a problem in our profession. And I am absolutely not anti-nurse, anti-PA, anti-anything. I'm pro-patient. And I think most nurse practitioners that I've talked to, and there are many I have talked to who have said, we need to clean our own house. We need to make sure we are training great clinicians and it can be done. It just needs to be done carefully and safely. Well, I'm going to make an argument that the most powerful lobby in America based on getting the Marshall funds is the hospital lobby. American Hospital Association got 175 Absolutely. billion, no strings attached, didn't need Absolutely. the money. Won't, won't ever use it for anything other than acquiring independent practices more than likely. And here you are essentially telling the American Hospital Association that you need to now consider funding a residency for nurses, which they're never going to do, the feds are never going to do, um, to give them the equivalency of the apprenticeship that you got. Well, uh, you know me, I'm not telling the American Hospital Association anything. I think hospitals are a disaster. Um, I think as much as we can stay out of hospitals uh, would actually be better for patients. And I think that essentially we're going to have to do it despite the American Hospital Association. And whether or not that is um, other nurses training other nurses, whether it's academic centers uh, putting on these residency programs, you know, essentially we need to think about the professionals we're churning out to take care of patients. So we've got to do something. Um, it's there's six states that have now done something very interesting with foreign medical graduates that's kind of exciting, and this might work for nurses too. And in fact, it, I think it's already in place. But um, six states have said, you know what, if you already went through the uh, 
gauntlet in India, Mexico, you know, any of these countries where you're considered a doctor and now you have come here, you can skip residency if you come to our state because we're definitely in need, particularly in the rural areas of you doctors that are already trained. So they're skipping the residency, but for three years, you do have to work under the supervision of a American doctor so that you can learn our system. Do you think something like that would work across the country for nurses? Well, there's kind of two answers to that. First of all, I think it's a brilliant idea for physicians. My father was an FMG. Um, he uh, was educated in Iraq and then came to England, got his, pedi he got his uh, pediatric training in England, came here and had to do one year of internship and then a year of a chief position uh, in New York before um, going on to do his endocrinology fellowship. So I'm a big fan of FMGs because I think often they're trained extremely well in, in many of the countries that they come from. So I think that is brilliant. I, I think the same idea, this transition to practice idea for nurses is not a bad idea, but I would love to kind of talk about where the profession came from, because to me, this is, this is the way it should have worked. Our problem is primary care. And a lot of these programs are training what they purport to be non-physicians in primary care, which I, I don't think is a bad idea. Um, and the original um, study was done in Canada, actually in Ontario, and it's the Burlington trial and two family docs went to McMaster's uh, university said, hey, we, we need, you know, we need help. We're full. We have these two wonderful RNs who have excellent skills. Can we, you know, put them in a training program and then have them see some of our um, uncomplicated follow-ups and some of the more basic protocol driven conditions that really kind of take our time and isn't really practicing to the top of our um, scope. So they did that. And um, essentially, it was a resounding success. These two nurses came back, they started seeing some of the more straightforward follow up conditions, and they actually could see about 45% um, of the patients on their own, they needed some help or intervention on a few of the others. But it allowed the practice to increase their ability to take patients by 22%. So if you could expand on that idea and have really well-trained nurses with graduate or master's degree level uh, education, you know, starting to work in primary care with, and I didn't say for, because I, I don't really want to own or become a profiteer, you know, physician either. So working with someone who has really good skills and then maybe working, maybe it's three years, five years. I mean, I would have to go through and kind of figure that out, but essentially starting out seeing the follow-ups and then bridging and branching out more and getting more and more experience. Um, I do think, I know this is a long-winded answer, but I do think something like that could work. But again, we're not sending out um, primary care trained nurses into ERs to work alone. We're not sending PAs out into urgent care centers to work alone. That is an entirely different conversation. And that's where the private equity firms have really taken over. And they'll put anyone in these urgent cares and ERs and then patients don't know. So I do like your idea of the transition to practice. And I think it could work very well. There's some exceptions. I don't know that I want a nurse anesthesiologist to be, you know, putting my child to sleep when they're getting some work done, unless they're trained in that specialty, right? I mean, but there are some, there are nurses that do specialize and, and do a fellowship, if you will, in uh, areas like that, aren't there? There are. And, you know, um, specifically, my answer was really geared towards primary care, because yes. this argument about putting... Um, a lot of the organizations are right. I mean, I'm in a small underserved medical area and we really don't have enough doctors out here. I mean, I'm a pediatrician who sees adults um, and I don't really 
say, I love to see adults, but um, a lot of adults can't find a doctor, even temporarily to help with asthma, to help with, you know, colds and coughs, th th pretty basic things. There's just no one else. And so that is a real problem, especially as we get more and more rural. So I do think there is this gap we need to fill. And I think that's what we've talked about is uh, training non-physicians maybe to do that. That's very different than going into a hospital and operating on a child or anesthetizing a child or specializing in GI or neurosurgery or you name it. So, so what is the happy medium here for primary care? If, if primary care is going to survive, it's going to need more to throw more bodies at it. Yeah. What Correct. is your answer for that? I think for medical graduates is the answer because we have 15,000 PDs that are trained and they're just waiting to go through slotting and they can't get enough slots. There's only 5,000 slots. So there's a backlog in internal medicine, PD, and, it, and FMGs are the beautiful solution in that they can um, go to rural areas. They'll tend to work with gerontology more than um, American doctors. They'll work in, with the aged population, Medicare population. I don't know that the answer is going to be, you know, so-called mid-levels to uh, fill in this, the, uh, the, the gap that we're having with the silver tsunami. I agree with you. I think the foreign medical graduates is frankly my number one um, request uh, or idea to help with rural care. I think the second option would be um, to uncap or fund more residency slots. I mean, we have so many unmatched graduates. I think there's about 10,000 floating around right now that have finished medical school. So in medical school, you had said two years, it's four years, actually, it's two years of academics and then two years of, of all clinical work before we then go on to residency yes. for another three years. Yeah, I mean, so, the practice and the actual time when they're seeing patients touching, exactly. touching yeah. Exactly. So again, I, we have, we have 10,000 um, uh, U.S. graduates in medical schools that cannot find a residency position to then train and go out into the clinic and, and see patients. So again, we have a double backlog. I think FMGs is the first place we should go. The second place is to expand those residency slots and to fund those positions. And then if at that point we've exhausted that opportunity, um, I think that nurse practitioners really can help support um, these rural areas. And, and I think it can be done right. There's so many wonderful nurses and nurse practitioners, as well as some PAs out there. I'm not as familiar working you know, with PAs collaboratively. So that's um, something I'm not as hands-on about. But I work with a pediatric nurse practitioner myself. I did look for a doctor. I couldn't find one. She is uh, has been a pediatric nurse. She did not go to a diploma mill. She went to a brick and mortar school. And uh, frankly, she is appropriately scared <laughs> out here in a small setting. And we talk all the time. She goes home and reads. She talks about how much more she still has to learn. And she, she really works hard and loves patients. That's the kind of person you want to work with. And I want to be clear, she does not work for me. Um, she works with me. She is do growing her own practice and we are sharing overhead. And so again, I think there are, th there are great ways to do this and expand um, uh, ability to care for patients, but we just need to be really careful and we need to put the patient first. Everyone needs to put the patient first, the doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, um, the lobbyists. And I know that's a pipe dream, but it's still what I think needs to happen. I have an elementary school chum who's now on the national board of the AAFP, and he said he's never through learning. He's always um, interested in learning more, and he it's a lifelong uh, passion for him. He's, he's 62 years old. 
It is. And and my father, I remember when we had a hair tourniquet, which is just a hair can get wrapped around a, a child's appendage. And I was going to have to cut it in a certain way. And I looked at him and I said, is this how I have to do it? And he said, I think so. It's the best I can come up with. And I said, well, when are we done learning? And he was 81 when he died. And I think we had this conversation about six months before he died. And he said, I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm done learning. <laughs> wow. So Naran, what what do you think um, adding slotting looks like? They're, the feds aren't going to do it. They're not going to come up with that money. They've since '94 been trying to add slots. I have a theory, and I, I don't. I want to try it out on you. See what you think. Sure. I think that so right now we're slotting. The slots are about sixty sixty five thousand per resident, and um, when a school stops teaching, like happened this year. They auctioned it off for billions of, or over a billion dollars, these slots. I don't know what it worked out per slot, but it was uh, a big number. Why? Because the average resident is billed out at about a million eight. So if they're costing them 65,000 minus the 65,000 they get from the feds, so they're basically costing them FICA and FUTA, that is a massive profit center for them. And I don't think that we need to fund a single residency slot. I think if there are any profit-making machines, just encourage uh, the schools to add slots, they can add slots because it, if it's a profit machine, why do they have to have the 60,000? Well, um, I, I, it's a great point. I mean, I suppose we could somehow uh, just add in slots and, and I don't know the details because to do that, I know the ACGME oversees it. I know they have rules and regulations. They have, you have to have a certain number of cases per resident. For example, if you're doing family practice and they do their nursery month, there has to be 45 babies, I think that they see. And some of these smaller hospitals have trouble meeting those um, benchmarks sometimes. So I think there would be some details to work out, but again, I think what's interesting is I, we're going to end up fixing this problem anyway, because what's happening now and what I'm, I'm sort of becoming involved in is a number of, uh, in particular in, in the cases that I'm reviewing, children are dying. They're just dying of, you know, simple cases, whether it's pneumonia, whether it's sepsis, whether it's influenza, children are dying all over the country when they go to these urgent cares and ERs and they're not staffed by physicians. And so those legal cases are kind of winding their way. They take about five years or so to, to get to completion and they're winding their way through the legal system. And then we're getting large settlements in the, you know, one to two million to six million dollar range. And, and lawyers, I love lawyers because I think they really um, are going to shine a light on, on what kind of problem we're having right now. Once these cases start winding their way through the courts, um, I think it's going to start costing hospitals more because when they're settling for 6 million, maybe let's say 10 million, whatever it is on a regular basis. And I am aware already hospitals realize it. They're starting to question credentials of non-physicians, looking at where did they go to school, looking at these diploma mills, you know, things are happening. And so I think what's, what ultimately they're going to be forced to do is having non-physicians working um, independently without the proper training. So not in primary care um, is going to cost hospitals more than it's going to make them. And they're, they're going to turn around and look at those $65,000 residents and say, yeah, I think this is probably a better investment. So I do think you are correct that hospitals will ultimately, because it is a cash cow, it does train more physicians, it would help with our shortage. I think they are going to eventually head in that direction. It's just, it's going to take time for this tide to turn. I wonder if when they make a settlement that the, if the malpractice pays or if they have to come out of their balance sheet to pay. 
It doesn't come out of their balance sheets. It's their insurance. However, remember to buy insurance once you've had a $6 million settlement. So I'll give you an example. The case in our book, which is the $6 million settlement, I'm talking about the um, Alexis Ochoa case. That hospital actually closed after, I'm not saying it's a direct cause. However, within um, about a year of that settlement, that hospital, El Reno, it was a mercy hospital in El Reno, um, that actually, they said, we can't, we, we're going to go bankrupt. So we're just going to close. And they just shut down. So it, you're right. It doesn't come directly off their balance sheet. There is no CEO that is saying, oh, here's half a million from my $5 million salary. But ultimately, it becomes harder to insure um, the care being done at that hospital. And there, there are other problems associated with these multi-million dollar settlements. So let's switch gears a bit and talk about a subject that's not in your book, but I want your opinion on. Um, there is a independent practice resurgent that's occurring with direct contracting. Direct contracting is where large employers contract directly with primary care, not DPC, onesie, twosie, Kool-Aid stance, but it's getting organized now. There's three companies that have gone public or go about to go public, two of them, um, including Everside, which used to be Paladina including um, Babylon, which has 25 million patients worldwide and based in London, and which includes one medical. So there, there are some subscription models that are no longer in the fee-for-service business, no longer in the value-based service business. They're in the monthly collection business. And if, if docs migrate over there, and I, by my estimation, somewhere around 25,000 independent docs now work for these organizations um, because there's 30 million patients. Do you think that's an out for the independent doctors as a solution? I do. I think if you're an independent doctor who um, wants to work for a large company and still wants to be technically employed, um, then I do think that that's an option. However, with all things, when you try to scale up and medicine's really interesting because we always talk about scaling. A lot of people look at how to scale it. And to be honest with you, it's really hard to scale up because, and, and again, maybe I'm narrow-minded on this and, and my, my view of it is, you know, I'm on third and fourth generation patients. I mean, I have one for four generations who has seen a Dr. Alajba. I mean, to me, that's a phenomenal thing. Um, it doesn't exist in this country anymore, though it did used to exist, you know, a hundred years ago. And there's something special about that. There's something really unique about the care, not only for the patient, but Think about me for a second. My job is actually easier um, because I, I took care of the mother as a child. I took care of the father as a child. And maybe I went to high school with the grandparents or, or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's really unique in that I can know everything about that patient in my head. And so I do think when you, when you scale up, while it is better because you are running a subscription model and you are focusing on a niche, you are directly contracting with the patient. So it does help with cost. There's some amazing things about it. Um, and again, I think it's way better than working for a hospital. Um, I think I'm one of those people that's kind of fiercely independent. Um, I often say I'd have to chew my own arm off probably before I'd, I'd really want to be employed by anyone else. <laughs> so there's always that kind of fierce independence um, running through. <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> uncle in Fort Worth is you. He is he worked for 62 years until he retired uh, on four generations of Fort Worthians, if that's what you call them. Mm -hmm. And so, and when I go to Fort Worth, there's 22,000 people who directly were benefiting from my uncle. And uh, I get treated like royalty down there. 
you know, I had a patient, a new patient yesterday, and um, she's 36 years old. Uh, and it actually was her child, to be fair. And she said, your father saved my life when I was four months of age. And I said, wow, you know, that's quite a, I mean, I don't even know how I'm going to hold a candle to the care he provided. And she, she t- told the story she's heard since she was, you know, a little child, her mom saying, you know, I went to a couple doctors. I, I came to Dr. Lajba, which is obviously my father, and he diagnosed meningitis and um, carried her in his arms across the street to the hospital to um, put her in the ER, do the spinal tap and do the evaluation, carried her himself across the street. And the thing is, you, you can't get better than that. I don't know any hospitalist that can tell that story. I don't know many in corporate practice of medicine that can tell that story. So this is a beautiful reason why you got in the business, why your dad got in the business, why your grandfather got in the business and why maybe even your children will follow your footsteps. My son, for sure. I have three sons. The youngest one definitely wants to be a doctor. I'm still holding out to hope that my daughter heads in the same direction. Yeah. Well, that's good. Good on you for uh, accomplishing that. That's a rare thing today. Um, So if people want to find you, Naran, what's the best way? Well, uh, let's see. I write for the Kitsap Sun newspaper, a bi-monthly column, and we're doing a deep dive on medical choice and the Supreme Court this summer, which is kind of fun. Um, I'm at naranalajba.com is my kind of personal site. And um, then Silverdale Pediatrics is my practice and sort of my livelihood and my life. And um, my email is real simple. It's naranalajba with no hyphen at gmail.com. So I love to hear from listeners or readers or people who have questions or just want to talk. Yeah, outstanding. And if uh, you could fly a banner over America with one message for everybody, what would that say? It would say, patients first, always. Love it. All right. Well, thank you for coming on board today. We learned a lot and it's a complicated subject. I think we unraveled it very nicely. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, Go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.